Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society. The University of Utah are the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode on a controversial pathology within shoulder and elbow surgery, which is the evaluation and management of acromioclavicular injuries, i.e. shoulder separations. So to discuss, we've invited two nationally recognized experts. First, from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, we have Dr. JT Tokas. JT, welcome to the podcast. And then next, from Mass General in Boston, we have Dr. Gus Mazaka. Gus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pete. Glad to be here. Well, I'm very excited to have you both on the podcast. I know this is a subject of interest to both of you, um, and I want to start at the beginning. So just pretend a patient comes to your clinic, they've got a shoulder separation. Before we get to examine imaging, are there any aspects of the history that are relevant? So is there anything the patient can tell you about their story that's that's useful to you in the evaluation of this patient? JT, tell us what you think. Well, normally these guys are, are traumatic, huh? And so they uh, usually there's a story of the injury that's go that that's uh, that's kind of comes in with that patient. Uh, my background was uh, what I learned about with this injury was uh, I took care of military athletes for an awfully long time, and so this was uh, super common for us to see with guys coming in with uh, so-called ear ticklers, uh, where they you know get out and they're doing either unarmed combat or they're falling uh, with weapons training, et cetera. So it was a really common. Uh, condition in our uh, in our population. I will say that my my views on this whole thing were tempered in my fellowship with Rich Hawkins, who always referred to the AC joint injury or the AC joint operation as an operation waiting to fail. So I guess that's the, from the beginning where I gained a healthy respect for these. What are your thoughts, Gus? Is it when you when you approach this patient, are there rele- aspects of the history that are relevant to how you proceed with treatment, or no? I would say that um, the history in a shoulder patient is always important because you're also looking for other possible injuries or other pathologies that may be causing the pain, especially when something's obvious, say in a grade three or a grade five, where there's you know obvious deformity. Um, sometimes there's other things that can be driving the pain. And as JT talked about, instead of spending a lot of time fixing the uh, AC joint, you can fix something else that may be causing the pain and, you know, uh, not go with the obvious. So I think always trying to take a good history and figure out what exactly happened and how, but I would not say that I'm looking for anything specific like we do for, say, shoulder instability. Okay, so you've you've taken your history, you've confirmed that this is, this is isolated, the pain's not coming from something else. You're going to go to examine the patient. Let's hear from you, Gus. What what are the what are the important aspects of the exam here? Does it matter if it's reducible? Does it matter if they can get full passive elevation? What do you what do you think is important in terms of exam? Yeah, so um, I start out always, you know, with a C-spine exam, uh, make sure that I can see the, uh, you know, the shoulder itself, take the shirt off, uh, make sure that I have good visualization of both sides. Um, And then, yeah, we start off with active range of motion. Um, Depending on how acute you see them or how soon you're seeing them, that can differ uh, a lot. And then I'll just follow with passive range of motion at that point. Uh, I will then really try to look at 
the scapula um, and if or how they're trying to control the scapula, that can change a lot. If you see, say, an uh, athlete, you know, the day after an injury or, you know, after the game, um, you know, their scapula can look completely different a few days later which is, you know, if they can control it, then they're going to be able to handle that injury a little bit better. Um, then uh, I, I look for, uh, obviously, you know, palpation of that painful area. Uh, and then what I'll try to do is um, go to the non-injured shoulder and look by stabilizing the scapula with my index finger and thumb on the acromion and the spine of the scapula I'll try to move the uh, scapula horizontally um, and see what kind of play it has on the good side and then see what kind of play it has on the injured side. And then uh, I'll have them shrug their shoulders. I do that shrug test that uh, Dr. Bach taught me. Uh, and if they can reduce when they shrug their shoulders, then to me, that's a grade three. Um, and if they can't reduce it, then it's a grade five. Then I look for uh, the patient that has kind of more splinting and tremendous more pain, can't really move. Uh, and at that time, I'm suspicious for a grade four, and I'll try to palpate and, and, and see what they have posteriorly, uh, trying to determine if it's um, penetrated through the trapezius fascia for a grade four. Uh, I think ones and twos really just have pain, and they don't have a lot of horizontal instability. Um, and that's kind of how I uh, assess that one specific part of it. We'll definitely do strength exam to make sure their rotator cuffs intact, make sure they're neurovascularly intact. Uh, and then, um, you know, look for other things as they, depending on when you examine them and, and how they feel. What are your thoughts, JT? Yeah, I guess I've become a little less, I've become a little jaded over the years with the physical exam, and here's why. Uh, when the patient comes into me, often they come in uh, for one of two reasons. Either they came in and it's fairly acute, in which case they are so painful, I can't trust anything on them, right? So Ben Kibler talks about, I think this is valuable, you know, if they can reduce it by putting their scapula into a, um, into a uh, retracted uh, position in a posterior tilted position. It's Ben's, it's Ben's opinion that if a patient can do that, then they're gonna respond pretty well to conservative management over time. I think that's valuable, although it's not, it's not studied in the literature uh, very well. If that patient has good control of that, that's pretty good. So the first thing is, is that if it's acute, that patient comes in and they're really hot, I don't know that there's a lot I can tell on exam uh, tremendously that, uh, so I usually will let them cool off for a little uh, time and then get an exam when they're a little uh, less uh, fired up. The second reason that patients often come in to see us is because they, they don't like the way it looks, right? And so I, I kind of cut to the chase over the years. I, and I say right up front, listen, if, if, you, if you don't like the way this looks, we're gonna have to do something to fix it because you know nothing that I know of will make this go away uh, completely. But if this is a pain and functional issue, well, let's give this you know, three or four weeks and let it calm down, let you kind of get, this is gonna feel a lot better six weeks from now, four weeks from now, and then come back and then let's see where you are and make a decision from there. I think that's, um, you know, well stated, but I think, um, you know, in the athletic uh, patient, that needs to try to get back or play, um, 
you you have less time. So I think for um, kind of the weekend warriors or or you know mountain bikers or something like that, that that's that's a great strategy. But I think there's a little bit more urgency in the in the athletic population. Oh sure, I would agree with that. Although if it's an athletic population and we're moving on to treatment. I would tell you that I would tell all these guys, if you feel like you can play, you can play. And if, and if you can't play, I'll inject you and we'll try to get you to play. So, so the physical exam, I don't know for me, doesn't make a decision on play or not play. That really becomes a situation of, Hey, do you feel, are you functional enough where you can be, you know, can you protect yourself, et cetera, kind of going forward. Let's talk imaging. So patient comes in, you know, is this your standard four views? Are you getting a Zenka view? Are you getting an Alexander view? Do these help you make a decision? Yes, no. What are your thoughts, Gus? I get a bilateral Zenka view. That really tells me uh, probably just the most, the most obvious. I can see the uninjured side and the injured side. I really look at the coracle-clavicular distance, and I also look at the acromioclavicular distance. The, the next probably most important image for me would be an axillary view just making sure uh, there's uh, no other injuries, coracoid fractures, um, lateral clavicle fractures, that kind of thing. Those are probably the, the two biggies uh, that I really spend the most time looking at. We'll, of course, get the complete, uh, you know, grassy view and then an SOV view. Uh, we were using that Alexander or Basmania view, but I, I haven't found that that helps me that much. And it's kind of hard with uh, uh, in our office where there's various uh, x-ray techs, depending on the day, to try to delay and go through that and have them do it. And, and uh, it hasn't been that helpful. So if I can get a good bilateral Zanka and an axillary view, then I feel pretty good. What about you, JT? Yeah, so I think I've learned a lot about this uh, over the years. I would I totally agree, agree with uh, with Gus that you know coming up and Carl Basmania was a longtime uh, uh, practitioner in the Army, saw a lot of Special Forces guys, has a ton of experience with AC joints, so he found that test uh, uh, very helpful for him. He felt it was uh, helpful to discern between stable and unstable shoulders. So if you're if you get that cross body view and it slides under. Uh, the suggestion is the scapula is protracted in internal rotation, and and there is a, a kind of a, I don't know whether it's an urban legend out there or, but if but if that's the case, that becomes unstable, and you should fix that. But I've gone to the literature several times to see if I could find any uh, evidence on that, and I, I if it's there, I've missed it. I can't find it to where to where it pre, it's predictive of either outcome with non-op or the need to go forward with surgery. So it hasn't in practice been helpful for me. And again. A lot of times those patients are too painful for that for them to actually even get over it. And so then you say, well, is it because they're limited by pain or because they, they can't get into the position? So that one hasn't been uh, tremendously helpful for me. The other one that we've learned about, and this is a, this is a paper that we did with a young man named Kevin Krull, uh, who published this with us. And we, we were trying to figure out how to determine these because in truth, we found that a lot, just like Gus was saying, depending on the x-ray tech and, the, and how controlled you can make these imaging systems, we found there's a ton of variability in the CC distance or the relationship between the AC joint just because of rotation and, and because of different views and different angles on this thing. And so what we found was, at least in a, in a predictive study uh, that was published a few years ago with Kevin, 
was that uh, it, that a single shoulder, and I, I so you, the short answer to your question, I get the bilateral uh, views just like Gus does, but we also get a single straight gratiate view. And what we found there was the most predictive, the, the only thing that was real predictive is whether that CC distance on that view, which we were pretty accurate with, was greater than 20 or less than 20. And if it was less than 20, those patients tended to do very well with non-operative management. If it was greater than 20, they didn't do very well at all. Is there any role at all for non-operative treatment? So, um, I'm sorry, for uh, an MRI to determine whether non-operative treatment is appropriate. So here's, here's my question. You've gotten your x-ray views. You think it's kind of maybe a borderline, and we'll get to what, what, whether or not you treat this surgically. I just want to ask before we get there, is an MRI helpful to look at delta trisio fascia, to look at the status of the ligaments? Is there ever a situation in which you're ordering MRI for a reason other than to exclude other pathology? What do you think, JT? Well, yeah, I think you hit it on the head. To exclude other pathology, I think, is critical because, as you know, there's studies that show that that there is a significant portion of, of injury with this, whether it's superior labrum or cuff damage, et cetera, that you might want to consider looking at. But if I throw that out, as you made uh, clear, if you said, hey, we're going to not look for that, what else would you get on MRI? Honestly, for me, there's not a lot of role for, for additional imaging beyond that. What do you think, Gus? I agree. All right. So let's talk non of treatment. The patient comes in, let's pretend it's acute injury. They've come to you, you know, three days post-injury. You've decided to proceed with non-operative treatment. What does that look like for you, Gus? Like, what, is it, what, are, you, what are you telling the patient that the, the next three months is going to look like? What are they going to be doing? What, is, what, 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 is, what, what do you think that, that, that you would do for that patient in that situation? Yeah, that depends on uh, a lot on the individual patient, what they're, you know, what, 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 um, what they're doing. Um, you know, are they an athlete in season? Are they athlete out of season? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, it, it's, it's got almost the same variability as almost a shoulder dislocation for me. So everybody's different. A 55 year old with a shoulder dislocation, completely different than a 16 year old that's out of season compared to an 18 year old. So I think, uh, for me, I would say that I default to non-operative management until they fail. Uh, I tell patients they can get back to uh, work and get back to sports much quicker if I don't do an operation. Um, and then what I'll do is uh, see them two weeks or four weeks, uh, depending in, you know, if they're in the office, if we're in the training room, then obviously the, uh, it's significantly, uh, you know, accelerated at that point, like JT was talking about. Um, if they want to get back and think they can back and, and they have range of motion and strength and they just still have some nagging pain, then uh, injection is fine. But I would say my spiel when I first see those patients is, you know, we can get you back doing the things you want to do much quicker without an operation than with an operation. What about you, JT? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, and, and I would, the only caveat I would say is that for me, that is also true of the grade five. So it, it doesn't matter to me whether you're a grade three or a grade five, and we'll get into why I feel that strongly about that. But um, that initial thing, the first question is to say, uh, do your, does your, does the cosmetics of it, when you look in the mirror, is that going to bother you? And if it does not bother you, if it does bother you, then there's, I, I don't have a way of fixing you except for an operation. So we should plan for that. 
if the cosmetics of it is not important to you uh, from the, you know, and having a little bump and you may change a little as the swelling goes down, et cetera, but that bump is going to persist. And I'd say, if, if that, if that, uh, if the bump doesn't bother you, then I would say in my hands, I don't believe there's any advantage to jumping on this right now. And you're going to feel a lot better. So everyone would be managed non-operatively, uh, you know, provided they don't have a skin compromise or, you know, the, the mythical unicorns grade six, right. Or, or, you know, something along those lines, but within reason between the, the ones, twos, threes, and fives for me, those are, those are all managed non-operatively unless I'm pushed. Do you agree with that, Gus? Would you say that there's really no one who should be treated acutely surgically, excluding obviously those rare cases? I think the word should is probably not ideal, Pete. Um, I think everybody is different, and I think uh, surgeons and providers are all different too. So um, if there's a, a procedure for the AC joint that, that uh, you know, can reproducibly eliminate that bump and doesn't quote settle anymore. I think we would do uh, far more of these because I don't think anybody really ever likes the bump. Uh, but I think the fact of them getting back to doing whatever they want to do a lot of time overrides that. Um, so uh, I, I don't know, should um, I know there's a lot of people that uh, and you know, we did a, a meta-analysis uh, with Knut Beitzel uh, where uh, acute versus chronic, we looked at in the literature, um, you know, our orthopedic literature, especially for AC, is not great. And we don't have a heck of a lot of data on non-operative treatment of AC joints. Uh, but, um, you know, we didn't find any kind of significant difference between acute or chronic, but there was a trend that uh, some of the uh, acutes, um, you know, had a tendency to do better, although that was kind of faulted. Some of that, you know, data that we had was a little faulted and biased. So it's hard to say. I, I say, should I think the surgeon and the patient make a decision and then they go for it, whether, whether they want to do uh, an acute operation where they want to do an arthroscopic procedure or an open procedure or what. I tell patients that the procedure I do is the same procedure if I do it four weeks or four years. So that's that's interesting to me. So the patient comes in acutely. Let's pretend it's only been a week. You're seeing a patient a week out from surgery. You have time tomorrow in your surgery schedule. You're going to fix them tomorrow. Again, let's leave aside. Let's pretend you've decided to fix it. You and the patient, that's what you both want. Are you still adding a graft? in the patient that's only had is only a one week from injury. And, and if so, is that necessary? What do you, I would, I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on this. Well, I'll let GT go first. Cause I, I have a, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in that situation. So. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to speak with it. I, I will say that, uh, that yes, I do a graft in 100% of cases, every, um, AC joint for me is uh, the same operation, chronic uh, or acute, and uh, there are several reasons for that. I suppose there is the case where you have a perfect avulsion of the AC joint uh, off of the um, off of the coracoid or off of the uh, clavicle, and you put a tight rope or whatever device it is that you're going to be as a, as kind of an internal splint because that's what's going to work as, but it's never going to heal. So I suppose you can, and certainly people have hit the home run by, by putting a tight rope or whatever device you want to do 
to, to put that down. But if you're not lucky and you don't put those ligament fibers exactly in the right spot or they don't line up exactly in the right spot, it's never made any sense to me why we would expect that, uh, that to heal in a strong way. And I think the literature actually supports that. If you take a look at, at, at data that has been uh, uh, even as, as recently as 2023 out of Korea, they, when they look at uh, acute uh, reconstructions of these things with no graft, you're, you're often looking at a failure rate in the 30s. And so uh, I think, thanks to Gus, honestly, and, and work from him, I think that our, that, our, uh, that our failure rates have come way down below that if we follow a, a, a concept that says, look, we're going to do everything, and, and we'll get into exactly what that is, I'm sure, later, but everything includes a graft and internal brace and everything else, again, trying to trying to flip the coin on that operation and trying to fail. Gus, same thing. I think yeah. failure, uh, sorry to interrupt. I think failure, no, though, we, um, you know, I think we should define failure. You know, failure meaning uh, the patient after the operation is in so much pain that they get a revision, which I think is incredibly rare versus failure, meaning the CC distance and the AC distance slowly, quote, settle over time. And it's not where you put it when you did the operation, but it's not bad. Okay, so let's, I think we're at the point now where we should talk technique. Um, I would like to hear from both of you, what is your current state of the art? You know, and JT, it sounds like this is the everything approach, and I'd love to hear what the everything is. And um, well, what does the technique look like? And um, maybe you could just go through the bullet points for us, Gus, of like, does, do, maybe go first. Tell us, tell us what, what the approach looks like for you. The approach for me um, is a beach chair position, probably a little bit more straight up than down because I like to be able to get to the back as well as the front. Um, I use a mini C-arm and I look um, before we prep. I'll try to get a good, what I consider a Zanka view or a good view of the coracoid, clavicle, and acromion. And then I'll manipulate that scapula to see what I have for instability and how I can reduce it. Oftentimes, by as JT talked about uh, in the physical exam, just by moving the, you know, we used to, in the old days, you know, lift up on the arm. That was our big move. But you can reduce an AC joint just by manipulating the scapula. So you can take a, quote, grade five or a grade three, moving the scapula, uh, especially if it's relatively fresh and can see that it reduces. There are others that don't. But that gives me a little bit of information. Then I do a kind of a saber incision from the uh, tip of the coracoid up over into uh, or at around the area of the, uh, the trap. I shade that a little bit more medial, so I'm not doing it right over the AC joint, but probably 20 millimeters medial, uh, and then we'll uh, develop that plane. So now I can see the trap coming down, inserting into the AC and the clavicle posteriorly, the deltoid uh, inserting anteriorly, and then I'll try to find that uh, the line between those two muscles and I'll make my uh, incision with a scalpel um, 
and a bow because a lot of times it's vascular, which is good. And then as I get over to the uh, AC joint, what I try to do is really take that incision and shade it more posteriorly. A lot of times, um, the um, if I go straight across, I start to run out of tissue anteriorly. So I'm very cognizant of that, and I'll try to go through the mid portion of the AC joint. But if I'm going to err, I'm going to err more posterior on that AC joint, so I have more tissue anteriorly. Once I have that, then what I'll do is I'll peel off as a kind of a, a whole tissue sleeve. Uh, the anterior, the deltoid has three insertions on the clavicle, superiorly, anteriorly, and inferiorly. So what I'll do is I'll try to peel off from the acromion going medial, the deltoid, making sure that I don't use as bovi as much as I do like with a little elevator or a uh, half-inch curved osteotome to try to take all that tissue off uh, in total, making sure that I have both the superior, anterior, inferior. Once I have that off, um, you can drop right down onto the coracoid process. What I'll do at that point is I'll walk my way to the tip of the coracoid process. Oftentimes, uh, it seems as the clavicle, which doesn't really move in that situation, but because of the position of the scapula, it appears that it's more posterior. So if you just start trying to go around the coracoid at that point, sometimes you're too posterior and you can uh, start to run into issues with the suprascapular nerve. So I'll work hard to get to the tip of that coracoid. Uh, and then uh, from that point, then we'll try to develop uh, from the medial side of the coracoid and the lateral side of the coracoid. And that's kind of my approach to kind of set that up. I'll usually use a PDS to try to... Um, so, or, uh, you know, make sure I have my deltoid in, in a good position and good control of that. Uh, and, um, you know, that's my approach to then start to do all the other things that we're going to do. Okay, JT, how does that, does that differ from your approach? Are you taking an arthroscopic approach? Is there any benefit to the arthroscopic approach? Yeah, I, I, mine is uh, a little different from that. First of all, I'll just tell you that all of us have sat at the uh, feet of Gus in terms of what he taught us about the anatomic approach to this. I mean, it should not go unnoticed that this whole thing started. He changed everything. And listen to this. He, as you guys know, or Gus certainly knows, he, he dissected 120 clavicles for anatomy in a paper with, I think it was Rios back in the day. And, and what they found was, was that the, the coracoclavicular ligament anatomy, which had not yet been really well defined, this is Gus's work, he found that, that it was very consistent in terms of the ratio from the lateral edge, 17% for, uh, for the trapezoid ligament, about 30% for the medial board of the conoid. So, so the point is, is that the, the, that was very, very reproducible. One of the things we learned, though, was that depending, that ratio is very good but you can't translate that to a number. And one of the big sort of um, eureka moments that we had with this was depending on the size of our patient, if you use the ratios, that would translate into up to nine millimeters of difference in, in where you put your tunnels. And so we said, gosh, we're going to cling to what Gus taught us about, about where to put it. And so we began, uh, we, we went back and looked at a bunch of hours that we had done and we compared failures to non-failures and how close we were. And here's what we found, which was for me, it was the day the light went off. 
when we were lateralized, i.e., when we put our, especially our conoid tunnel, if it was less than a, the 25% distance from the end of the clavicle, so less than a fourth of the way home, we didn't see a failure, not one. When we were greater than 30%, we didn't see a success. All of them failed. And in between, it was in between. So that was the day we said, oh my goodness, it's anatomy, right? And so from that day forward, including to today, I begin with templating every single AC joint that I do. And I put those tunnels exactly where Gus taught me to put them, which is for me, 0.17 for the trap and 0.25 for the, uh, for the uh, conduit. Okay, so now I know where to put them. So now I start with a scope. And uh, I'm sorry, I don't start with a scope. I start with a straight incision that is four centimeters from the edge of the uh, AC joint over toward medial to the clavicle. And it's just subcutaneous, straight one like you would do a clavicle fracture. And the reason is I dissect out the AC joint every time. The reason I do that is because if you don't get that disc, sometimes you can have a block to reduction. And that's one of those don't ask me how I know that kind of things. So I make sure that I can get the top of that clavicle absolutely flush with the top of the uh, acromion. And it, it takes a little bit to dissect that out. So I make sure my incision includes that. Then I'm going to go four centimeters medial to that uh, so that I can get down center, center on the bone. And just as Gus mentioned, it's critical that you can elevate that anterior aspect of the deltoid all the way off the clavicle. And in fact, I go all the way under it because we're going to be drilling tunnels. Once I've got that, I stop for a second. I'm in the beach chair position just like he is. It's the only procedure other than arthroplasty that I do in the beach chair position. But I still like to do this in the beach chair position. And so what I'll then do is stick the scope in, and then I'll open the interval. And then through the interval, I can see the medial border of the, of the coracoid. And then through that little incision where I am medially, I take a switching stick and I go down and I palpate the coracoid. It's very easy to do. And then I just slide down on the medial side and I'm looking at it through the camera. And then you take one of the metal cannulated things that you introduce your cannulas with. So the metal one, uh, like the dilator, and you put that down over the top of your switching stick. When, you're, when you can visualize that, which is pretty easy to do, you're viewing from the back and you can see it right medial to the coracoid. You, move, you remove the switching stick and you just put a little fiber stick or a, a passing stitch. Now you've got access to the medial side of your clavicle. That's it. Then you just retract that out your anterior portal and you pass it lateral to the coracoid, which is easy to do. And now you've got it around the coracoid. My graft is always a graft. So it's always a, at least a semitendinosus that's of about six millimeters in diameter. And then I do a double internal brace. So from the middle, I'll take a, a fiber loop or some sort of a looped um, suture, and I'll run from the middle out to the periphery on one side and from the middle and out to the periphery on the other side. So the whole thing looks like a Roman sandal. That's my first internal brace. And then I run a fiber tape along with that. That's my second internal brace. I pass those using the stitch that I just had. So now we've got the clavicle ta or the coracoid taken care of. Then you just pass those through two five millimeter tunnels. I, I'll drill two uh, uh, sorry, 5.5 millimeter tunnels in the uh, clavicle at the spots that I mentioned earlier and before. And then the graft comes through those tunnels. I, I then reduce it using that same metal, uh, metal introducer on the clavicle. And as, as, as Gus mentioned, lifting up the scapula via the elbow so that I've got a really good reduction. And then when I'm there, I tie down the first internal brace. Then I make sure that the length of the graft is long enough to be able to reach the AC joint. And then I put my two peak, not biocomposite, not biologic, peak interference screws into the um, two tunnels and fix those guys with enough length so that the limbs of the anchor or limbs of the graft can get out to the AC joint. And then I reconstruct the AC joint 
and then I do as, as deep and, and aggressive a job on the clavipectoral fascia as I can, and that completes the operation. Any alterations to that, Gus? Yeah, I would say that we've really struggled with the protraction, retraction of the scapula around the clavicle, which is really a strut. And I think that really <clears throat> is what um, leads to the settling that we found. Um, so what we've gone to is using a small um, metal anchor at the end. Uh, we fix the and reconstruct the AC ligaments like JT spoke about. But instead of what we used to do, which is sew the deltotrapezial fascia back together over the top, I take a PDS and uh, kind of run it on those three areas of the deltoid I talked about, superior, anterior, and inferior. And then what we'll do is as we have that kind of as a whip or a baseball stitch, then I'll take a uh, you know micro metal anchor as small as I can and put that into the area of the lateral clavicle. Uh, it's double loaded. And then what we'll do is we'll tie two horizontal mattresses trying to reinforce or have that deltoid attach right to the anterior AC ligaments. If when we opened up that AC joint like JT did such a great job describing, posteriorly, we'll do the same thing with a small anchor and then take that trap and attach that to the posterior aspect of that AC ligament. And we biomechanically were able to mitigate some of that protraction, retraction, or perceived rotation. So there's a significant amount of superior inferior, which, you know, a lot of the devices uh, that have been mentioned in the graphs can take care of, right? That's the conoid and trapezoid. By reconstructing and, and uh, also uh, imbricating the AC ligaments, you can also mitigate a lot of the horizontal or anterior to posterior motion. But all of the different ways we had to try to fix that AC, which is, you know, a round uh, dowel into a flat plate becomes hard. <clears throat> and that's why we started looking at the last part of it, which was that deltotrapezial area. And that's why we try to reconstruct that now, not over the top, but into that AC ligament uh, to try to help with that horizontal motion as they did start to mitigate that a little bit as well. So that's kind of where we're at now. Let's talk graphs. So aloe, auto, hamstring, what, what's your preferred graph, Gus? Um, I would say I used to be a big semitendinosis, but semitendinosis can be hard to get sometimes. And I don't think it really matters. Um, so we use peroneus longus. Um, you know, we just need a piece of collagen that we're going to be able to, as JT talked about, reconstruct our conoid, reconstruct our trapezoid with those uh, peak interference screws, uh, and then try to really work on those other two things, which is the AC imbricating it, reconstructing it with the excess graft, and then talking about trying to uh, repair the deltotrapezial deltoid to the anterior trapezoid to the posterior. What are your thoughts, JT? Yeah, I I'm naturally inclined toward autograph, but 
interesting. You know, nobody ever complains of graft or donor site morbidity when you do a hamstring ACL of their hamstring, but they sure as heck complain of hamstring donor site morbidity when you take it for anything else, right? We've all seen that. I would say that uh, that we looked at our own uh, series of this at Tripler uh, with Jay Cook, who was one of our residents at the time, an outstanding uh, orthopedic surgeon, and uh, looked at the difference. And we we didn't find a difference between it. Looked in the literature, it's it's there's not a lot out there, but the studies that are out there, I don't think guide us uh, uh, toward one being uh, better than the other. So I think aloe and auto are the same. It's certainly faster. No chance of donor site morbidity. As to the type of graph, I agree. I don't think it matters very much. I don't think you want to put a hog in there. I don't think you need to put a you know an Achilles ten or something like that. Uh, but I, uh, but uh, but so we usually use MIT, but a posterior tib and trim that down a little bit, or a perineus longus is fine by me too. All right, so it's beautiful description of the technique. I think listeners are going to get a ton out of that alone. A couple more questions for you guys. When, if ever, do you use a hook plate? Is there ever a situation that, that warrants that? What are your thoughts, JT? Yeah, revision situations, I will often uh, use a hook plate. They work. The challenge is, is that, you know, they, they, they work while they're in and they need to come out. And I've got a bunch of guys that disappeared back to Okinawa or went back to Guam or wherever they were in the Pacific and quote unquote forgot. And I've seen a couple of those what they eroded through, et cetera. So you have to have a, a patient that buys in to say, yep, we, we definitely need to take this out. And then um, I do think it adds as a, as, a, as a real protector of this. So in, in revision cases, it's a good one for me. I do not do it in, as, as a standalone procedure ever. What do you think, Gus? Yeah, I agree. The one way we um, kind of get, get, get around that is we'll, uh, if you're going to do it, I think the other time that uh, it's been helpful is if you have a uh, – instability and pain due to a too aggressive distal clavicle excision. And at that time, or some type of, you know, malunion or non-union, I think the hook plate can then be helpful at that point to stabilize things, let things scar in and heal. Uh, but then scheduling uh, the hook plate removal, um, you know, so that it's on the books uh, as opposed to letting them come back and then decide. Even if you have to delay it, at least you have it there and, and it's in the patient's mind that they're going to get it removed. Okay, so you've done the beautiful operation you just described. It's in an athlete. How long until they can return to play? Let's pretend it's a football player. It's like someone contact collision athlete. How long to return to play? What do you think, us? I think they're all the same uh, at that point. Once we have that graft in there, we'll put them in uh, kind of a, not a sling, but some type of unloading device. You know, 70 newtons comes off, hangs off of what we just reconstructed with, uh, you know, dead tissue and a couple of little tiny sutures. The one thing I will add, though, is uh, which I didn't describe in that technique is I use, uh, you know, a specific company's cerclage uh, uh, tape. So I'll go around the coracoid, but then through the cannulated portion of the interference screw immediately. Uh, Paul Cagle uh, kind of taught me this trick. And then we put that knot uh, between the clavicle and the coracoid. So we kind of retro uh, place that suture around. And that's kind of what our first, um, that's how we reduce it uh, on, the, uh, on the medial side for the conoid. And then we cycle it and, and uh, put in the trapezoid side. But 
with that being said, I'll put them in a uh, like a Lerman brace, uh, some type of unloader so that their arm is supported, not hanging, but always supported, almost like they're, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, contracting their traps or kind of hunched a little bit. So that arm is completely unloaded uh, for six weeks. Uh, and then we'll take them out of that. Uh, we'll take bilateral Zankas to see where they're at. Then we start uh, range of motion. You can actually tell who's been compliant and who's not based on their range of motion right at that point. Um, For sure. They're worried about that. If they don't have it, I say we never went in the glenohumeral joint, so you'll be okay. And they get their motion by 12 weeks. We start them strengthening at 12 weeks in around five months. If they're, you know, have full motion, good strength, and feel great, then we can let them go back. And if they're still struggling at that time, then we send them back to, you know, work or labor camp at six months. What are your thoughts, JT? How long to return to play? Yeah, pretty similar. I'm, I'm slow. I'll take every bit of it that I can get, right? I don't trust that thing at all. And I don't trust it even at, you know, you know, five months. So, if that's when season starts, then we'll bite the bullet a little bit. But I, I usually tell my patients six months if they have it, I don't hurry. I do similar stuff to us in terms of the post-op rehab. I would say for us, this is a, a, a standard shoulder with, this, with the abduction pillow, except that the abduction pillow, and we've talked to a couple companies about putting the Velcro in a different place. And here's what, here's what it means. Everybody gets the pillow, and then they put the arm on the outside of that. And that helps you stay in abduction. But what I tell the patients is we want to take that uh, Velcro off the abduction side of that and actually put the elbow on top of the pillow. So, so you've got that natural rest. It's an armrest, essentially, like your car. And so I tell them I want the arm as an armrest almost in, in almost 24-7 for the first six weeks, again, an operation waiting to fail. And so when they uh, – and, and that's, that's really the only thing I do. When we begin range of motion, I don't mind them starting at six weeks, but the one thing I tell them is at six weeks, you, you've got a heavy arm. Do all of your motion, Supan. So we really do that to take gravity out, and there's no pressure of trying to take that arm and, and get it to fall. So I say, look, I want you to get full forward elevation here now, and let's, be, let's get after it, but only in the supine position so we're not fighting weight and gravity. And, and most of the time, if these guys are going to fail, they fail early. They fail in that first, you know, 8 to 12, 6 to 8 to 12 weeks. And so if we get them through to that, then it's usually pretty good. Let's, let's talk for a second about failure. You, me, you mentioned earlier, JT, that, you know, there's a literature suggests a 30% failure rate. Obviously, you guys have done a ton of work here to improve this. With your current technique, with your current rehab protocols, what do you think is the chance of success of maintenance or reduction, i.e. that you get an x-ray at six months, at one year, and it's equivalent side to side. What do you think, Vicky? Uh, I would, well, this is a little bit misleading. I would say that it's, 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 it's probably one in 10. It's probably 90%, but I will caveat that. I'm not looking after Army Rangers anymore, right? So my population at Mayo I'm, I'm just as likely to have a 45-year-old guy who's a recreational athlete who can take time off and is not going to push things so hard. So I think it would be a little arrogant for me to say, oh, yeah, I got this thing figured out. I, I'm not sure that I do, but I would say that, my, uh, that, that, our, that our results from a, from a radiographic standpoint, we radiograph everybody, is, it's pretty uncommon for us to see a failure now. And I will say that when we started on this journey, 
I'd say back in 2010 or 2011, I was probably, if you just go strictly on radiographics, I was probably in that low 30s, high 20s, low 30s kind of, you know, loss of a little bit of that reduction kind of going forward. So very, very pleased about where we're going. Sure, certainly not perfect, but much improved with uh, with much of the, the techniques as they've been developed. Do you get those numbers, Gus? No, mine are much worse. I would say that, uh, you know, we get, uh, like I said, we get that bilateral Zanka view uh, at six weeks. We get another one at 12 weeks. Uh, we get another one at six months. We get another one at a year. And I would say that at year, two years, uh, I, I would say that I, I don't think, maybe I just dwell on all of these too much, but uh, I, I, they, they're, they, I don't think I've had one that stayed in exactly the same place. Maybe you should stop getting x-rays, buddy. <laughs> that's what, that's what Dr. Andrews taught me. Yeah. He, he, he uh, admonished me one time for that. And uh, yeah, no, that's, that's true. If you stop getting x-rays, then uh, they look good. You're right. Yeah, we get them through three months and that's it. And and you may be very, you may be well right. Um, but but I, I guess I don't see many patients who come back. I don't know, that's a, that's another guess way to define failure. How many times do you see those patients that come back and say, hey, the, this thing is up and I, I it didn't work? Is that common for you? Uh, no, 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 no. That's why I wanted, that's why I brought up yeah. the whole failure thing earlier, right? Like I, I, I tell people that, hey, it, you're going to still have a little bit of a bump at about a year. Like you're still going to have a bump. So if the bump's the big deal and you think it's going to go back to normal, then uh, you need to see uh, one of my partners or some of my competitors or whatever, because I'm not going to be able to do that for you. I have not, or very rarely have I done a revision because the patient has failed and has persistent pain. Um, so, you know, when I'm, Radiographic failure absolutely doesn't equal, um, you know, clinical failure. Uh, so <clears throat> I've done very few revisions um, on on my AC joints, but I would say that they've all, quote, settled somewhat. And that's why we keep trying to look at this from a biomechanical standpoint and, and new ways that we can kind of stabilize that because there's a tremendous amount of motion of that scapula that's out of the plane that we're actually fixing. So we thought when we first started the anatomic cortical clavicular ligament reconstruction that the conoid and trapezoid based on Debsky's paper would take care of a lot of that horizontal because we knew we could get the you know superior inferior. But the issue really has been the fact that the protraction and retraction of the scapula and it depends on how well the patient, like we talked about in the very beginning with the physical exam, can control their scapula. So those are all access of what's going to happen and how they do afterwards. Well, it sounds like there's definitely more work to be done in the future. So I think we'll all stay tuned. Both of you did. This was awesome. I really appreciate both of you guys going through this. I mean, again, you both have such an incredible wealth of experience. That's about all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you so much to our guests. For all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time. Great job, Pete. Thanks very much. Appreciate it, guys.